Uh, you can open up your Bible if you have one. We're going to continue in the book of Hebrews. We're going to take a couple breaks on some of the Sundays coming up, like Mother's Day. Next Sunday, Pastor Larry's going to preach a standalone sermon that Sunday. When Father's Day rolls around, we'll do something similar. Uh, but we're going to continue trying to press on uh, through this book of the Bible. It's been so wonderful, and I trust that even these last few chapters will keep benefiting us. But I want to say a few things before we turn our attention to that text. I wanted to say thank you ongoingly for your generosity as individuals, as families, uh, toward the general fund of our church. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your generosity, giving of what God has given to you to help further what we're doing as a church in our community and all over the world. I uh, just want to encourage you to continue on in that endeavor and that grace of giving. Uh, you're making a worthy investment. I know sometimes when we uh, have an auto deposit or we just uh, place something in an envelope, sometimes it feels out of sight, out of mind, but those gifts are being used and they're being stewarded well in advance of the kingdom. So thank you for that. I also wanted to say, I didn't tell him I was going to say this because he probably would have asked me not to, but I wanted to say thanks to one of our deacons, uh, Kirk Rockenbaugh. I don't even know where he is, uh, but he, uh, our deacons serve in ways that are often unseen uh, back there. Uh, brother, thank you. Uh, he's one of our deacons here. And th those uh, brothers serve in ways that often go sight unseen. One, for example, would be you probably don't pay attention to the cleanliness of the carpet in here, uh, but for the last couple of weeks, there's been a process in between Sundays of moving tons of chairs and tables, and there's a company that came in and was cleaning uh, and uh, Kirk organized that, getting all the quotes, making sure we had people to put uh, those things out and put them back and coordinate all that. And so, brother, that's just one among many ways I know that you serve our body. So thank you uh, to you. I'm grateful for all those brothers uh, and the ways that they, they serve our church. Uh, one other thing before we turn. Uh, tonight, we are going to have our monthly prayer gathering. It's going to be at 6 o'clock. Uh, I may mention at the end of the service, but wanted to mention it now while you're all attentive and not just waiting to go get lunch. Uh, you might already be at that point. I don't know. Uh, but tonight at 6, uh, we have our monthly prayer gathering, and it's going to be really special. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Pastor Tom and then one of our deacons, Josh Topol, uh, recently got to go to Southeast Asia to visit uh, one of our families and one of the couples that we've sent out from our church to do international church planning in a closed country. They met them in a different one. Uh, but they're going to share about what that was like, things that were encouraging, and even share some ways that we can be prayerful for that couple and for that work that they're doing in Southeast Asia. And so we'd love for you to be able to come tonight, if at all possible. It's the same time as youth group. We also have child care provided. Uh, but we will probably meet in room 112 uh, over on this side of the building, the large classroom over there. So I hope that you can come to that. All right, if you've found Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin at verse 8, and we're going to end, hopefully, Lord willing, at verse 22 this morning. Uh, but this text uh, spurred many thoughts in my mind and heart, and as I was reading things, uh, it brought even more. One thing, for example, was I am not a seafaring person. Uh, I didn't grow up around lakes. I, didn't, I was rarely on boats ever. I fear cruises, things like that. I, I, I don't know a lot about being on a boat, but one thing that I read in a couple different places that people mentioned in relation to this text that their minds had run to was this old adage of sailors, uh, people who are out on the sea a lot. They were saying this, that when, when people, especially if they're newer to being out on the water and on, on a journey, uh, and they start to feel that seasickness and start to feel nausea, whether it's because of some big waves or whether it's just that small unsettledness that comes from being on the ship. Uh, one of the things that sailors apparently say, and I read there's at least some truth to this from a scientific article, is they said the best way to deal with that when you're feeling that unsettledness and feeling that maybe nausea even in your gut isn't uh, to, to just grab onto something or to, to look down or close your eyes or something like that, but it's to look out 
to the horizon and to see that place that is unmoving uh, when everything around you is moving and maybe getting jostled around, everything inside of you feels discombobulated. They say to look to the horizon and if you stare at it, that it'll slowly start to provide stability and start to help you deal with that nausea that's in your gut. And I love that as a, a physical principle that we have in our world. But that is more than just a nautical principle, I would say. I think there's spiritual principle in that uh, that we can learn from that we're going to see even embodied in this text. That when we in our soul and in our heart are feeling a, an unsettledness, when we're feeling a shakiness, when the things around us are, are getting jostled around, the thing that we ought to do to, to stabilize ourselves, to deal with that, is not to just look around at the media and try to figure out how can I fix this or how can I get out of this wave, out of these waves or get off this boat, but to look to the horizon and see what is coming where there is an unmoving, definite truth, uh, a reality that is coming to me and that I am heading toward. And that is what people for millennia, even people who lived before Jesus, did. Uh, when all around their soul gave way, as we sing sometimes, they looked to the horizon and saw what was to come, and they trusted God for that, and it helped them get their bearings in the present. It helped them endure in faith. And so uh, we're going to read about some of these men and even uh, a sister in the faith today in this text uh, from verses 8 through 22. I want to, before I read this, though, set the context, because some of you all haven't been here as we've been going through this, and that's okay. Uh, but this book of Hebrews is a letter written by we don't know who. Uh, to a group of early Christians uh, within decades of when Jesus would have been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. But it's written to Jewish Christians, people who'd grown up ethnically Jewish, who'd grown up hearing the law of Moses, practicing all those things that were contained in there. Uh, but they had started, we don't know exactly fully why, but they had started to kind of lose their bearings as a people and as a church because of opposition that was coming to them. They would have their property plundered. They would have their reputations tarnished, things like that. They were starting to feel this shakiness of their faith and of life. And what they were tempted to do, instead of looking to the horizon and what was to come and continuing to bank their hope on Jesus, what they were tempted to do was to turn back around to the, what they perceived of as a safe harbor they had come from of Judaism, of following the law of Moses, doing all those sacrifices, going to those priests. They were tempted to turn around and go back that way and, find, and set anchors there. Um, but what this author is trying to do again and again in this letter is to tell them, no, do not turn around. Press on in faith to that horizon you've been told about and where you believe and know there's a Savior. He is coming for you and is worth, he is worth pressing on in faith even in the midst of these waves and even in the midst of these trials. And he's been in this chapter 11. He's been giving and he's going to do this even more in texts to come. He's been giving them real life human examples to look back to. Uh, men and women who have done this very thing. That when they were tempted to turn back, when they were tempted to, to abandon their faith, they pressed on. And many people call this chapter the Hall of Faith, kind of an English play on words of the Hall of Fame, that it's kind of this record of very prominent people often, but some that were maybe lesser known, but people who had faith that endured to the very end, even through the midst of trial. And he's pointing them back to all these people to say, if they persisted and they persevered in faith, so can you and so should you. And so we've taken a couple weeks to start into this Hall of Faith. We talked about it kind of like a tour of this Hall of Fame, this Hall of Faith. We've seen a few people already. Pastor Jake preached last Sunday, which I don't know where he is, but thank you, brother, uh, for preaching last Sunday. Uh, he looked at the first three examples that the author gave to these people the, of Abel, 
of Enoch and of Noah. That was a wonderful message. If you didn't get a list to it, I encourage you to go back and listen to that ministered to me. Uh, but as we turn to today's text that I'm about to read, he is going to really zero in on this very prominent man in the Old Testament named Abraham and his faith and how it was shown in the midst of trials. Then he's going to spend a couple verses and talk about Abraham's descendants, his son and his grandson and his great-grandson, and how they had the same faith that their dad, their grandpa, their great-grandpa had. And so I'm going to read this for us, and then we'll walk back through the text, see what the Spirit of God would say to us through it, what he did say through it originally. So if you have found Hebrews 11, I'm going to start at verse 8. I'm going to just read all the way down through verse 22 and encourage you to follow follow along. So this unknown author uh, continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing to these early Jewish Christians and he continues his tour through the hall of faith writing this. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents With Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this message, and there is so much more I wish I could say about this text. This is covering basically Genesis 12 through Genesis 50 in like a handful of sentences. So there's going to be way more that goes unsaid, but how I would would summarize what I think the author was intending to communicate through mentioning these people and their faith, and that I would want to convey to you and to us today would be this, is that saving faith involves trusting God's promises both when we are tried 
and when we are tired. Uh, that it involves trusting the promises of God, both in instances in our life where we are tried, where we're tested, but also moments of our life nearing the end where we are tired, where we may be worn out, where we're facing temptations in that stage of life. A saving faith involves trusting God's promises in all of those circumstances. And so I want to show you what I mean by that, what I, I think the author was trying to explain, and hopefully bring it to bear upon your life and upon our hearts as well. Uh, so thinking through this first heading, if there's two, when we're tried and then when we are tired, if you want to think of this first heading, it's going to dominate most of this text, is this idea of having faith, having trust in God when we are tried. Uh, he mentions, this author mentions three very prominent stories in the life of Abraham. Uh, he, he mentions three of them. There was more he could have referred to, but he pulls out these three tests or these three trials of Abraham's faith and points readers back to them and says, pay attention to this. Look what he did. Look what he believed. Look how he lived in light of his trust in the promises of God. And I want to quickly show you those. And if you want to read more about them, I'll try to mention the text that he's referring to. So you can at least go back maybe later and read some of those. But uh, we'll just do a flyover of these stories that he's mentioning here. So trial number one that he mentions in Abraham's life. And it's the first one we really see in the life of Abraham back when we read Genesis is this trial of leaving his home. Uh, The first instance where Abraham appears is in Genesis 12. And God, right off of the bat, the first thing that he calls him to do uh, is to leave his homeland, uh, to leave where he had grown up, leave where his fathers before him had grown up. Uh, And this would have been hard for many reasons. It would have been a test, a trial for many reasons of, of Abraham's faith in this God that he was starting to engage with. One was because... Abraham wasn't looking to move. He, he was wealthy. He was established. He was a prominent figure, it seems like, in the community. He had many animals, many servants. He had, had a, a massive enterprise that he was overseeing. It's not like he was hankering to go plant new roots somewhere. Uh, he he was, had a homeland. He had a place. So that would have made it hard to leave. You could imagine that. If that's your situation, you're called to leave. But what would have made it doubly, if not multiple factors, harder was that God, if you go back and read Genesis 12, and it's, it's shown even in today's text, God told him to go to a land that he would show him. He didn't even like give him a map and say, hey, Abraham, like, I want you to go move here. Like, uproot everything and go there. He said, uproot everything and move everyone to a place I will show you. And Abraham, you could imagine the pause in him thinking, could you at least tell me where? Like if I'm, if I'm going to uproot everything, if I'm going to set sail to go to, to some new place, can you at least tell me where? But God doesn't. He just tells him to go where he will show him. But how Abraham responds in this first test and trial, this text tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called, Right? to go to a place uh, that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he says he went out not knowing where he was going. He, he set sail, trusting the Lord, trusting his guidance. So he obeyed, and then verse 9 says he went out by faith. So he obeyed. He, he went out, he took all of his family, all of his possessions, all of his people, 
and he went out. This made me think a small little glimpse of this, although it does not even hold a candle. When my family moved here from Ohio 12, 13 years ago, we moved into an apartment here that we had never actually seen. Uh, we were kind of doing this quickly. Uh, we were needing to find a new place to be, and in God's providence, he arranged for us to come here, which I thank him for constantly. Uh, but we moved into an apartment, Stephanie can verify this, that we had never seen. We saw some pictures of it, though, at least, online. Uh, but uh, uh, Andy Royer, who worked here at the time, he had gone and looked at it and kind of reported back to us what it was like. But we left Ohio. We signed a contract digitally to move here and live in an apartment we had never even stepped foot in. That's like a little, little, little glimpse, a small taste. I cannot even imagine this brother being told to uproot. We had one child at the time. We were young. We didn't have a whole lot to move. This guy was old, established, wealthy, had, had all these things, and he's willing to go sight unseen, not even knowing the destination. Uh, he trusts the Lord and goes. But I would note one thing from this text, though, in verse 9. He went there with all these possessions, with his wife, with all these people. He went there, and it says in verse 9, he, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So even when he went there, as he continued to live there, he didn't fully view that as his permanent home, right? It says, even note verse 9, that they were living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. You don't set, most people don't set up a tent to live in permanently, right? When we're in our home, we like to have a foundation under us. We like to have all these things. They purposefully, even when they went to the land, continued to live in tents, as a sign to themselves and as a sign to everyone else, even this, that we left our homeland to come to, is not our permanent final homeland. This is a passing through place to somewhere better, a passing through place to someone else. And he tells us in verse 10 that Abraham, I love this, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Uh, that is where he was ultimately looking to move and where he was trusting God to take him. And why he was willing to leave his homeland was because he was going to that city, going to that place that God would build that was an eternal home. So he had confidence that God would take him there. And so he passed that first test, passed that first trial of leaving home. The second one that he mentions in verses 11 through 12, this second very prominent story about Abraham when you go back to Genesis, was this test or this trial of conceiving Isaac. Uh, this dominates numerous chapters through the story of Genesis that you could go back and read. But Abraham and his wife struggled, and that is an understatement, to conceive a, a biological child. Uh, they, they were provided children through other means that was, was not fitting. Uh, they were trying to get creative about how they would uh, have children, how they would have heirs that even through other women, things like that. But as a couple, even though God had told them he would give them a child together, that he would raise up offspring and even raise them into a nation together as a couple, uh, even though God had told them that uh, and continued to give promises over the years, it took decades from the time that God told him, I will provide a son for you all. It took decades until it finally came to be. It was an ongoing, strong test of faith, not just for how long it took, uh, but because of even some of the things that are alluded to in today's sex of how old they were. Uh, God was doing this on purpose. He was telling older people, I'll give you all a son. 
And then he made older people wait a long, long time to have that son to show again and again, if a son comes, it's because I'm giving him to you. It's not because of biology. It's because I am giving him to you. Uh, and I love some of the, the phrases that he uses in here. We know what these things mean, but why this would have been hard to keep trusting God for the son. He says in verse 11 that Sarah herself received power to conceive, hear this, even when she was past the age. Okay, we know what that means, adults, uh, that, that she had gone through menopause, that, that she was not in a, in a rhythm of life where she would naturally conceive a child, could not naturally conceive a child. She was past the age but the statement about Abraham is even more funny or harder. It says, verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead came a nation. That's a, a flattering statement, right? Like, Abraham, if he could have talked with this guy, maybe they talk in glory. I don't know. I was like, did you really have to say that? Like, I, I, I wasn't as good as dead. I was still uh, sprightly. Uh, but he was as good as dead. He was 99. When, when they finally conceived, 99 years old. And people lived longer back then, but he was 99 as good as dead. But God kept telling them, I'm going to give you all a son. I'm going to raise up a nation from that son. Keep believing me. Keep trusting that I'll do it. And this text indicates that by faith they did continue to trust him. Right? You read through Genesis, and at long last, God comes to them, uh, and he tells them in Genesis 17 and into 18, hey, this time next year, that son is finally coming. Uh, he, he's finally going to be here. Even though you're pushing 100, he's finally going to arrive. I'm finally going to provide him to you. And both of them, in different parts of the story, both of them laugh in response to that message. Uh, I want you to imagine how hard that would have been to keep trusting that. They had left their homeland decades before, right? On the promise that they would have a descendant who would grow into a nation and they would live in this place. And they had gone into that homeland, but no son. And it would have been tempting for them to think, man, is this God, is he really going to do this? Is he, we're past the age, I'm as good as dead, is he actually going to do this? And you would know how their faith had been tempted to waver and to wane. But this says in verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. So she and Abraham together, they both had confidence, even as they got older and older, that God, even though they laughed, even though it was hard to believe at times, they continued to believe it, that God would provide a son. And Sarah considered him faithful. Right, The one who had promised, she considered him faithful. And ultimately, God showed himself to be faithful. And that time, that year later, she did give birth to a son named Isaac, which name means laughter, like that, that he laughs. So as a reminder to them that even these promises we laughed at, God kept. Uh, and so they, they believed it. And I, then I love, so that was the second scene. I love verses 13 through 16. This paragraph is so good uh, because before he mentions this third scene, this third test in Abraham's life, he gives this paragraph about Abraham and Sarah and even about the people he's mentioned before them, like Abel and, and Enoch and Noah. And he gives us a little glimpse into why these people were able to trust God. Like, what were the dynamics going on in their mind and heart that made them able to trust God to do these impossible things, like saving them through an ark and giving them this son and giving them a homeland? All these, what enabled them to trust him and to be willing to sacrifice to go and to, to do these things that he called them to do? 
And I, I would point out to you, I, I, I find it interesting, uh, this distinction between what they had received and what they had not yet received when they ended their lives. Verse 13 starts differently uh, from how I would expect it to start. He says that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They had received some of the things that were promised, though, right? Like, they had made it through the ark and safely emerged from it. And they had uh, received a homeland that they lived in. And they had received a son at long last. But what he says here is they died in faith not having received the things promised. Which means there were bigger, grander, more eternal things that God was promising beyond those earthly things. And even when they died, they had not yet received those things. But they had trust, they had faith that God would give us those things. They had faith that God would bring us an eternal home. That he would help us emerge not just back onto this broken earth like Noah, but that he will help us emerge in a new earth. They, they had these grander, more eternal promises that they were believing in and trusting in. And that made it easier, it made it simpler in some ways for them to trust him with these smaller promises with these things that were more present, closer in time, smaller scale, those sorts of promises. Because they trusted him for the grand things, they were able to trust him for the smaller things, right? And I love this paragraph because it says, it reminds us what they were hoping for. It was not just a homeland here, not just a son here, not just a nation here, but what they were longing for was much bigger, much more grand. He says things like that they were seeking and that he implies that God had promised these things, that they were seeking a homeland, right? Or here's my translated, a fatherland. Uh, that was more than just Canaan. That was more than the promised land. They were seeking a heavenly home. They were seeking an eternal home. He says that they were seeking a better country, better than Mesopotamia, where, where Abraham had come from, better than Canaan, where they were starting to live, that they were seeking a better country than those. He even says that they were seeking a heavenly one, a heavenly homeland. And then he narrows it down. It's not just a homeland like a nation, but he even talks about a city that they desired to live in, that they were longing to go to, right? He says that they were seeking a city uh, whose foundations, uh, that has foundations, right? Whose designer is God, whose builder is God. That is what they were seeking, uh, was that heavenly city, that, that eternal city that had no threat, that had no need for gates to be shut, uh, that had not, none of those harms and, and threats within them. That is what they were seeking, a city with foundations, and because of that, I love this phrase at the end of verse 13, because they were seeking that, because they were longing for that and trusting that God would give them that, it says that in this life, on this earth, they acknowledged, the end of verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They knew that this is not their home, that Canaan is not their home, that whatever tent they were living in was not their home, that they had a heavenly home that was on the horizon that they were surely headed to, uh, that whose foundations are sure and steady. And I love that it says that they viewed themselves as strangers and exiles, not in Canaan, but on the earth. Like no matter where they went on the earth, there was no home here that was ultimate. That they could step foot anywhere on this planet and they would never fully, truly feel at home. The only place that they would feel that and know that was in the heavenly city. 
And so they were looking to the horizon. Abraham and Sarah were. Uh, Noah and Abel and Enoch, they were looking out to the horizon on the eternal future and that helped them to ride the waves of waiting, to ride the waves of having to leave and forsake things and people that they loved. They knew that they were strangers and exiles. And then he brings his, our attention, the reader's attention to this third and final scene, uh, starting in verse 17 through verse 19, this third final trial test of Abraham and his faith, and this was probably the hardest one of all. I cannot even fathom it. It was the sacrificing of Isaac. That's what he's referring to. This son that God had promised and made them wait for and then miraculously provided for them. Uh, In verse 17, he starts telling this story, referring these readers back to this story that many of you are probably familiar with. But it's a story that can be found back in Genesis 22 uh, where God tested. There's specific language here in verse 17 where God tested Abraham, tested his faith. Uh, And that is an accurate term. That's an accurate language. Tests or trials of our faith. I would point this out to you. James refers to this the same way. These were things, sometimes we think of tests or trials just as an opportunity to potentially trip up, a potentially to mess things up, screw things up, show my distrust in God. But what the scriptures in a text like this points to again and again is a test or a trial is as much, if not more so, an opportunity to demonstrate trust to demonstrate obedience, to demonstrate, I believe you. And so it's, it's not just God was trying to trip Abraham up and say, gotcha, you weren't serious. He's giving Abraham an opportunity to show, no, I truly believe you. I am banking on that heavenly city that you are taking me to. Uh, that is where my hope is set, not on this earth, not on the gifts that, the good gifts that you give me here. So the story he's referring to and that he briefly recounts in verses 17 through 19 You can read about more fully, Genesis 22. But God commands Abraham to go to this mountain we call Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his son. That sounds crazy to us. That sounds wild to us. Uh, It would have probably sounded wilder if you're the person being told to do that. To, To take this son that God has given to you and to kill him. To sacrifice him to this God that you have given your life to follow, who's made these grand promises to you. And this, on top of that, if it was any child, that would be infinitely hard to even fathom. But God had made promises about this kid, saying, I'm going to grow a nation through him. This one kid, not your other sons, not other kids that may come in the future miraculously, through him. I'm going to grow a nation through whom I'm going to bless all the nations. How does this make sense? In Abraham's mind, I'm sure it did not compute fully. How can this be? Like this son you gave to us miraculously, you say you're going to build a nation through, now you want me to go sacrifice him to you. But they go to Mount Moriah. You read about this in Genesis. They go to Mount Moriah in a gut-wrenching act that I cannot even fathom. Abraham takes his knife ready to sacrifice his son. And he hears a voice and God tells him to stop. And in the thickets nearby there is a ram that God provides and he tells him, sacrifice this animal instead of Isaac. In a sense, like you have demonstrated your faith. God knew what he would do, right? But he he wanted Abraham to know. He wanted all people like us who know now the, the sincerity, the depth of Abraham's faith. 
that he was willing to even give this son that God had given to him. He was willing to do something that seemed wild and crazy and audacious. He was willing to do. But what would compel that? Like, what would compel trust enough to do that, to slay the son that God had made promises through, to to put him to death? This text tells us, and this is not directly stated back in Genesis 22, but it's implied, I think, back in Genesis 22. Here in today's text, verse 19, the author tells us that Abraham considered, back at Mount Moriah when he was about to do this, He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. He's saying that was what was going through Abraham's mind and heart that day as he went to Mount Moriah. God, I don't get this. You have given me the son. You've made promises through him. You are telling me to sacrifice him. I don't know how this works. And this is gut-wrenching, and I would rather do anything than this. But he had the only way he could make sense in his mind that God would work this is that if he slayed Isaac, that God would raise him back up from the dead and that he would build a nation through this resurrected son of his. And there is a hint of that. This is not just the author totally making this up. You read back Genesis 2. As those two were about to go up to the mountain, uh, Abraham tells the people that are there with them, their entourage, he says, we're going to go up and worship and we will come back. He knows what he's about to do. Like he, that's why they traveled there. He, he has the knife in his back. Like he knows what he's about to do, but he says even before it happens, before he knows the ram's going to be there, he says, we will come back. He had confidence that God could raise his son, that God would raise his son from the dead. So there's all these scenes, all these trials in Abraham's life of faith I want to give a couple quick words of application for this, and then we'll spend a little bit of time on the last few verses. But trials of faith are not just something Abraham faced. They are something that every Christian faces. They are things that you have faced in your life if you're a believer. They're things you will face in your life if you're a believer. God brings tests. He brings trials to us, not to make us stumble, not to just potentially catch us in unbelief, but to give us an opportunity to actually demonstrate faith to demonstrate a radical trust in God that's willing to leave places, that's willing to sacrifice things. God does test us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. God may call some in this room uh, like he did Abraham. God may test some of us, try some of us, by calling us to the international mission field. Say, are you willing to give up Winona Lake? Are you willing to give up closeness to your family? Are you willingness to go to a place that I will show you to take the good news of Jesus and go there? And much of your answer to that question will depend on, am I looking to the heavenly city or am I looking for life here? Like, am I looking for the reward to come or am I just trying to secure up as good of a life as I can right now? That may be a test, a trial that you face. For some, God has given you a test. Maybe he's giving you a trial right now where he is calling you to wait and to wait and to wait and to wait like he did with them in the provision of a son. That, that he is not just giving you the answers to your prayers immediately. He is making you wait in patience to see what he will do, to see how he will provide. And will you continue to trust him or will you shake your fists at him in frustration and anger? For some of us, like Abraham offering up Isaac, for some of us, a test, a trial of our faith is when the Lord takes loved ones from us. 
people who are, are not just dying in old age, but he takes people in their prime. He, he takes people's life who are even children or the unborn. And he tests and he tries our faith to say, do you trust me to raise the dead? Do you trust me that that city to come is real? Because if you don't, you're going to despair and you're going to be angry at me. But if you have hope and confidence that that city to come is real, that someday those who are part of his family will be there, then you will endure in faith and trial, even though it is gut-wrenching, even though it's painful, even though it is agonizing. The Lord will test and try us in different ways to refine us and to demonstrate the sincerity of our faith. These people, Abraham and Sarah and all the people in this chapter, and may this be true of us, they didn't trust God because they understood exactly what he was about to do in their life or exactly what the next turn of life was going to be or what was around the next corner. They could plot out every step along the way. and Oh, I see, your I see why you're going to make me go through this hardship and it'll work out this way. They didn't have that. They knew what was on the horizon Right? And they trusted for that, and they said, between here and there, come what may. Like, I trust you, even when you take me down dark alleys that are confusing to me, even when you take people that are dear to me, I trust you that you are taking me there. And they endured in faith, they, they were compelled on in trusting God. And they knew that he was trustworthy to keep those things, to provide those things, even when these more proximate things would feel confusing confounding and I am amazed as I read through this chapter that these brothers and sisters had that kind of faith to trust God like Abraham when he was on Mount Moriah he believed that God could raise the dead right I don't think he had seen God do that right he believed that God could do that right he believed that God could give him a homeland we have seen especially in this issue of raising the dead we have seen that God has done that, right? Not just that he could do it, and I trust hypothetically that he could do that. We have the truth of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that Abraham did not. Like, he saw the horizon. It was fuzzy to him, I think. Like, how could this be? I don't get this, but I'm, gonna, I'm willing to offer my son. I'm confident you can raise the dead. We have seen and we have known now for thousands of years as the human race that God has raised the dead. That God has resurrected one man in particular, Jesus Christ. And it's not just theory for us. It's not just hypothetical for us. He has done it. And that horizon is much more clear to us because of the story of the cross, because of the story of the resurrection, the true story of the resurrection of Jesus. That horizon that was far out for Abraham, I would say, is a little closer for us. And we can see it a bit more clearly for us because of what he did there in Jerusalem that weekend long ago. Because when Christ went up Golgotha, like when he went up the Mount of Calvary to the cross to be sacrificed, and the father was ready to slay his son, there was no ram in the thicket, right? There wasn't. Like what Abraham almost had to do, what he metaphorically, figuratively did, God the Father actually did. Like in ways that were deeper and harder than what Abraham was being called to do. Like what happened at the cross was that God the Father slayed his son, Jesus Christ, the innocent one. Not because he was guilty, but because we were. 
And we, would have, we deserve to be slayed by God. We deserve to not be part of that city. We be, deserve to be judged and condemned forever. And the only way that we could be forgiven, that we could be granted life and entrance into that city, is if our sin was dealt with and punished. And the way that happened was that God the Father wasn't just willing to slay his son. He did slay his son in our place at the cross. He put him to death so that we may be forgiven, that, that his judgment, his justice may be rightly uh, followed and upheld, uh, but also he may be willing to forgive and able to forgive and show mercy to us who are sinners. But then on that third day, that Sunday morning, he didn't just receive Jesus back metaphorically from the dead, he received him actually back from the dead. Like he raised him from the dead never to die again. He started new creation in that tomb that Sunday morning when he raised Jesus up from the dead. That was when this new world started. That's when this new city was starting to be formed was in that moment when he raised him back from the dead never to die again. And we know the truth of that. And he tells us if we turn from our sin and trust in that Savior that we are given new life as well. Like we are granted entrance into that city once and for all when eternity comes and when Christ returns. But even now we can fellowship with God. We can be reconciled to him because of the work of Jesus there at the cross. And so when we have that as our horizon, we, that is a steady, unmoving truth that God has crucified his son in our place. And God has raised him from the dead. He has started this new creation. That is that unmoving horizon. That when we are shuffled around, when we are thrown around by waves and trials, we can look there. Like we don't have to just look at our circumstances and be confused by who God is and what he's like and what he's doing in my life. That is confusing, but we can look to the horizon and know what is coming. Know his mercy and compassion that will be shown to us once and for all. Because there is a rest, there is a heavenly city. And in that heavenly city, there is a Savior who invites us in, right? And Jesus said he was going to prepare a place, that he was going to prepare mansions, not tents, right? Like we, we, when we go to that city, we will stay. There are foundations to it that can never be shaken, that will never be shaken like there is in this earth and in this life. And when we have trust, when we have hope in that horizon, the God who is there and the things he has promised, it inspires and encourages others to do the same. When we see them looking to the horizon, we want to lift up our eyes to the horizon and say, we are going there. Like, we are going to that city. I just want to spend a few minutes on these final verses. Uh, these are rich, though. Uh, verses 20 uh, through 22. Because this is that second category. This will be much more brief. But this category of faith, of trusting God when we are tired, when we're getting near the end of our life, the end of our race, are we still able to trust God even to the end? And there's three men mentioned here, verses 20, 21, 22, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. If you don't know who those guys are, it is okay. They, are the, they represent each of the generations that immediately follow Abraham, his son, uh, one of his grandsons, one of his great-grandsons. And this author is saying, they had faith, they had faith, they had faith. All three of them had faith, they possessed faith, even up, he's going to draw attention, even up to the very end of their lives. They had faith that was demonstrated in the things that they said and the things that they did. So real briefly, I want to point these out. 
uh, first generation, you see a tired son. A son, who, Isaac, who's getting near to the end of his life. This is in verse 20. The author says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Those are his two sons. That story, that verse is referring to a broader story you can read about in Genesis 27, uh, where we read that uh, Isaac's eyes were growing dim. Some of you know this story where Jacob tricked him <laughs> into giving him a blessing. Uh, so he's old enough where he can't even see which son he's talking to, okay? That's the stage of life he's in. His eyes are growing dim. Uh, but what this author is wanting to point out to us is not about his physical eyesight, but his spiritual eyesight. That even in that old age, he wanted to convey blessing, to express blessing over his sons. That he wanted them to hear, even as he was dying, his hope that God will keep his promises. That he will not abandon us. He will keep doing what he has said he will do. So Genesis 27, verses 28 through 29, Abraham said this to his scoundrel son who tricked him into blessing him. But don't worry about that. Hear his faith of what God will do. He says to his son Jacob, he says, May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. That's not just him wanting to be great. That's God had said that would be. That, that this would grow into a nation that would bless all the nations. Uh, and so Isaac is demonstrating even in his old age, hey, Jacob, even though he thought it was Esau, God is going to keep his promises. Like, I want you to know, I believe God is going to keep his promises. That is what I'm praying. That's what I'm asking. That's what I'm expecting is God will keep his promises to grow us into a nation. So even in old age, he's trusting in the future work of God. Second generation, verse 21. It says to that, that son that grows up now, it says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Just want to note one thing. By the time this is taking place, and this is referring uh, to something that happens in Genesis 47 and 48. So we're getting near the end of Genesis. By the time uh, that Jacob is old, a bunch has changed right? Uh, a lot has changed. There was famine in the land. Joseph uh, had gotten mistreated by his brothers. God had worked things where they're actually no longer as a family living in Canaan, where Abraham had uprooted and gone to. They're actually back in Egypt living there. Uh, so they're not even physically in the home that God had promised them. But what he's pointing out is at the end of his life, Jacob blesses his sons, still believing God's going to work what he said he'll work. That God's going to do what he said he'll do. And so it talks about when he was dying, he said these things, bowing his head in worship. And in Genesis 48, this is the blessing that he gives. It's actually to a couple of his grandsons, sons of Joseph. This is part of the blessing that he says over them. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And then a couple verses later, he says, the author records that then Israel, that's uh, Jacob, says to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And so he had hope that even when he was dead, God would keep working, that God would keep doing what he said he would do. Right? And then we get to the final descendant mentioned here uh, this, in this text, Joseph himself, verse 22. 
They're still in Egypt at this point, but he's referencing this part of the story uh, at the very end of Genesis where it says, he records it this way, that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, so again, note that theme of when they're about to die or at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That may feel super weird to you, like, what? <laughs> what is that talking about? I'll try to briefly explain. He's not recalling some past event, right? The exodus was still yet 400 years in the future from this. Like where, where God would eventually raise them up to this great nation in Egypt. And through Moses, who we'll hear about next week, God delivers them. Joseph somehow knows that that is coming. Like he knows that God is going to eventually deliver them out of Egypt, take them back to Canaan. And he's, telling, he's so confident that God is going to eventually do that. As he's about to die, he's saying, I want you all to take care of my bones. And when that finally happens, I want you to take the box those bones are in and take them back with you to the promised land. Why would he say that? He was a prominent, prom, he was like second in command in Egypt at this point. Could have had a home that was steady and solid there. But he's saying, I want you all to take my bones with you back to Canaan when we finally go. And he didn't know exactly how that would play out, but it demonstrates he had confidence what God would do long after he was dead. That this God who has promised things to my grandpa and my great-grandpa, he is going to stay good. He is going to keep these promises. He is going to give us a homeland, right? And so he, he tells them in Genesis 50, he says this. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from there. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. When the Exodus finally came, they actually took his bones. <laughs> they actually came good on this, took it back into the promised land. Uh, he, but he was so confident of it, he gave directions about his bones. But this, this author points out that none of these people in this life had received the fullness of God's promises. They had been given tastes of it, but they had been promised more. They had been promised an enduring city that they were trusting in God for. And these people had tiring, difficult lives. I think that would, would, ours would pale in comparison to in many ways. They had tiring lives, but at the very end of those lives, they were still trusting in God of what he would do in the future that they could do nothing about. They couldn't even imagine the future with themselves in it doing things to secure blessings. They just had confidence God would do it. And I just want to give a quick word of application to those who are older in our congregation. This text is, is telling us about how to think about faith when we are old, when we are getting near death, when, when we have run our race and we are tired. I think I am not yet in old age, I don't think. Uh, that's relative, I guess. But in talking with older brothers and sisters, I know old age can be both, it is a test. It can be a temptation, but it can also be a, a way that you can demonstrate faith to younger generation coming behind you. Uh, old age can tempt us, can't it? Like it can tempt us when we've had pain pile up. We've had to wait for things. It can tempt us to start to get jaded and bitter and frustrated with God. And we can start to forget the horizon just say, forget that. I'm trying to just scramble and scrap together as good of a life as I can in whatever days remain. 
I want to live it up here. I want to have a, as cush of a life as I can here. And we forget the horizon. We just try to grab for what we can in this life. We must resist that temptation as older men and women. And remember the horizon is more real than the foreground. Right? And to not scramble together to just try to secure as much as I can in this life. But old age is an opportunity to demonstrate faith as well. It's an opportunity to show people coming behind you that you believe that horizon is there. That you believe that city is there and there's a savior in it. And you demonstrate that by how you live this life. By how you face sufferings. By how you face trials. How you face conflict. How you face difficulty in this life. Are you looking there or are you looking here? And as you continue to look there, it's an inspiration, it's an encouragement to younger saints coming behind you because guess what? And you've been there. Us younger saints are way more tempted to focus on what's shifting around on the boat and worrying about the waves and like which way to, to steer the boat. We're way more worried about some of the closer things in. But as you get older, I hope and trust that as I get older, I'm like this, that as I get closer to death, that I'm looking way more frequently to the horizon than I am at the ship rocking around because it's closer to me. I, and it's much at stake whether that horizon is there or not. And so as, as we, as our, maybe a way to say this, is as your physical vision wanes, your spiritual vision should get stronger, right? As you start to not even be able to read sometimes or see the things in front of you, your sight of heaven should become crisper, sharper, and you should live as if that's true. Live as if you are going there. I think sometimes in old age, we live more sentimental than expectant, right? May older Christians live expectantly, not just sentimentally, thinking how great that was. May we talk to younger people saying how great that will be. Like how great that earth to come will be. Won't that be grand? If you talk like that to younger people, it will inspire our faith. How to keep trusting the promises of God. Much I could say. Just invest in people younger than you. Demonstrate whether within your family, biologically, socially, or whether it's in the church family. Demonstrate you believe the horizon is there. Don't be absent from their lives. Be present. Be blessing them. Be speaking hope into their lives. I do want to end by one just quick anecdote, and then we'll sing one of my favorite songs. Reading this text reminded me of, of one of our, our modern, well-known people who I think most of you will know who he is, a guy named Elon Musk. Some of you know who he is? Okay. He kind of runs Twitter now. He started Tesla and SpaceX and things like this. One thing in particular, he's a fascinating guy, not remotely a Christian, uh, but he, he wants to build a city on Mars. That he talks openly about this. Like you can listen to interviews about it. He wants to build a city on the planet Mars. Uh, and he, he wonders if we could do it in his life. But he's concerned about what he would call like the fragility of humanity and the fragility of our planet. It's a very godless view of things. But he's worried that maybe a meteor will come and destroy our planet. Or maybe there will be some catastrophic nuclear fallout or something like that. And that the human race will just go out with a whimper or with a bang, I've heard him say. And he wants us as a, he calls us a species, which I hate. But he wants us to try to become interplanetary and create a new home somewhere else. Where that if that befalls us here, that life doesn't end. That we have a city, that we have a, a, a civilization somewhere else. And he has felt since he was a teenager this personal obligation to try to develop that. To try to help secure a future for humanity. 
But what, if I could talk with him, what I would try to, and I don't know if he would listen, but what I would want him to know and believe is that we don't just need a new planet. We need a new creation, right? You can go to Mars. You are not going to find the foundation, Hebrews 11 is talking about, and you surely are not going to build the foundation Hebrews 11 is talking about. Like the city that we long for, I think that he even longs for deep down in him, is not a man-made city. It's not a city on earth. It's not a city on Mars. It's not a city anywhere else in this universe. It is the city of God, the new Jerusalem, that God has designed, that he has engineered, that he has begun building now. It exists now. It doesn't need to be created by us. It doesn't need to be uh, imagined by us. It exists now. And that new Jerusalem has a foundation that is solid. The citizens there do not die. They don't thirst. They don't hunger in the ways that we do. They don't have strife. They don't need a president because they have a savior, right? They, 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 we will have, and they there have everything that they could ever need because God has, this text tells us, God's prepared that city. He's designed it. He has built it. And someday he will bring it here and we get the privilege of inhabiting it. Right? If we come to, to him by faith in Christ, we get to live in that city once and for all. That is the horizon, that that city exists, and that God has swung the doors open to all who would turn to faith, turn to him in faith in his son. Amen? So as trials come, as tiredness comes, may we press on trusting in God's promises.